Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The Nature Podcast. As you might have noticed, we've had a little musical refresh. We reckon it reflects how we feel about science multi-layered, but always exciting and fresh. Don't worry, the rest of the show is just how you like it. The best science from the last seven days. This week, we're taking a look at fake antibodies scuppering research in China. So how do you spot a counterfeit reagent? And what's China doing about the problem? Cancers would be easier to treat if all their cells were the same. But that's definitely not the case, for lung cancers at least. Plus, what happened before tectonic plates? A lot of swirling magma and spurting volcanoes, that's what. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 11th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. You name it, someone in China has faked it. Prada handbags, coffee from Sunbucks, Apple iPhones, even entire Apple stores... I can walk out of my apartment and walk down the street and I can find, you know, watches, bags, uh, DVDs. This is David Sironoski, Asia-Pacific correspondent for Nature, based in Shanghai, China. There's not a lot of effort to crack down on this stuff. The same is apparently true in science. Companies are selling counterfeit reagents, products for use in experiments like antibodies or serums, and scientists are finding out months or even years later when their experiments keep failing or can't be repeated. It figures that China would be a target for these fakes. There's a lot of money going into research, so plenty of scientists to sell them to. The real reagents have to be imported, which means a delay while they get through customs. And foreign companies rely on local distributors to sell their wares, a system where fakes can easily leak in. David Cyrinowski has written a feature about the problem. I first asked him how common it is. It's hard to get an estimate of, of how widespread it is, uh, partly because a lot of people don't want to talk about it. For researchers, you know, the, some reasons that I heard of, they just are embarrassed by it. But also, they're afraid that if people know that they were using counterfeit products, they might start to doubt their, their previous results. Are they good, these counterfeits? They must be if scientists can't actually tell the difference between the ones they're buying and, and real ones. There are different kinds, and some of them... So sometimes they might just take a real product and then dilute it, 
and, and scientists would normally dilute some of these products anyway. So instead of diluting it one in, a, in one in 500 times, they're diluting it one in a thousand times without knowing it. And that might not affect the experiment. But if it if the dilution gets to a, a level where, you know, you, you, you don't have any of the reagent left, or you don't have enough to make the to pass a critical threshold, then you would get no response in, and your, your experiment wouldn't go well. There are other things like um, uh, there's a lot of counterfeit antibodies. And if you have a counterfeit antibody and it's targeting the wrong protein, your experiment is, is not going to work. And not only is it not going to work, it might give you a, a false positive result. You might end up uh, finding that you've targeted something, thinking that it's the thing you were looking for, and neither you or anyone else can reproduce, reproduce your results. It did cross my mind that even though reproducibility and not being able to replicate other people's results is a global problem in science, that there are certain high-profile papers that have come out in in recent months and years from China that haven't been able to be reproduced. I mean, I suppose we'd be speculating if we tried to work out whether those were subject to this problem. Yeah, I, I have heard sometimes people who you know people of whose papers. Uh, are uh, being questioned now who are their papers are being challenged now on the grounds of irreproducibility and in a few cases they've they've taken the defense that well maybe it's just bad reagents so it it could be a convenient excuse for people it could also be the real reason that uh, people are having trouble because there 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 were people that I talked to that you know published a paper and then couldn't reproduce it they found out that it was just a, a bad reagent a counterfeit reagent that they that was to blame are the companies themselves trying to do anything about this? The companies are, yeah, they're very aware of the problem, and they do different things. One is to get online or to, to have seminars, um, manuals, you know, how, how to uh, differentiate between a good product and a bad product. Uh, something else they do is to make specialized bottles or make specialized labels that are hard to replicate. That, that was one of the stories that uh, caught my attention for this, actually, because they had a, a cleaning woman that was going through the trash cans at this institute in Beijing, and she was taking out these bottles, and, and one of the researchers said, what are you doing? And he was afraid that she was going to take them home to drink from them or you know, mix juice in or something, and she said that there's someone outside who, who comes here and pays me 40 RMB, so about 5 or $6 or something like that, to give them these bottles. So... The company's measure was working, but um, you know the counterfeiters were finding a way around it. Do you have any reason to believe this could be happening outside of China? I know some people that used Chinese products outside of China have been affected. They bought um, products from a Chinese company and and have complained about it. Again, they don't know for sure. They can't say for sure that it's counterfeit, but they they do um, suspect it. For scientists listening to this who might be affected, because we do have quite a lot of downloads in China and perhaps some of our listeners are practicing scientists, what would be your advice to them? How do they get around this problem if they think they've been affected or um, or they want to avoid being affected? I guess the biggest thing is to, to go to reputable sources for, for your reagents and validate all of your uh, biological reagents before you start your experiments to know that it's really testing for what they they wanted to test for and to know to go back to these reagents you're using when ex- when an experiment doesn't work know that that is one possibility i guess what surprised me the most was uh, that there wasn't more pushback 
using legal measures by some of the people who had been duped. If I were a researcher and I had wasted six months or a year using something that I know someone sold me just so that they can make $100 or something like that, I would be angry. I'd be pissed off. So I would go and probably try to, to find the police and, and shut them down. But there, there wasn't much of that. That was our Asia-Pacific correspondent, David Suranoski. To find out more about the counterfeit reagents market in China, I highly recommend his feature, which is online now at nature.com news. Stay tuned for the research highlights featuring inkless printing and elderly mice on marijuana. That's after a look at the earth in its infancy. Here's Adam. Pretty much every school kid has a mental picture of the structure of the earth. At its centre is the core, made mainly of molten iron. On top of this is a wide band of rock called the mantle. On the surface of the mantle is the crust, that's where we all live. Plate tectonics keeps things moving, creating and destroying crust where two plates meet. But the Earth hasn't always looked like this. When it first formed about four and a half billion years ago, the world would probably have been one big magma ocean. So how did the Earth transform from this liquid fireball to a planet with a cool crust and plate tectonics? A study out this week has built a model to help search for an answer. I called Antoine Rosel, who led the study, to find out why it's proven such a tricky question to answer. It's tricky because the oldest rocks we see uh, have about, I think, uh, 3.7 or 3.8 billion years. But there's very few of these rocks. That's the big problem we have how to go from from this earlier stage to to the present-day picture we have. So what are the suggestions of what could have been happening to the early Earth before we get to the stage of plate tectonics? Uh, There is no no clear consensus on what was happening because there is very few data. Well, the alternative to global plate tectonics in the early Earth is that you have a lot of, of volcanism and magmatism in general. So in the top of the mantle, we had very large temperatures. Then some magma forms. And then there's two things that can happen. You can have volcanism. Well, you you form these volcanoes and the magma uh, really cools down very quickly at the surface. So then you end up with with a very cold surface. And you can also uh, take the magma, but it could, it, it's possible that it doesn't make it to the surface, it doesn't form volcanoes, but it stays in the crust, at the base of the crust. And then the magma cannot really cool down because of the surface. So basically you have two choices. If you generate a lot of magma, you can either erupt everything and make it very cold. And if, if it doesn't make it to the surface, then uh, it stays in the crust and it's kind of... Uh, insulated from the atmosphere, and then it stays warm. And in your study, you simulate lots of different Earths with different mixtures of magma being kept in the crust or spewing out as volcanoes. What do these simulations tell you about how we got to the Earth we have today? So the main finding of this study is that we absolutely need to intrude uh, the magma to leave it warm in the crust. If we don't, we generate very, very cold uh, basaltic crust, and this basaltic crust cannot melt again, at least in the good conditions, to generate continental crust. But if you erupt a little bit, generate some volcanoes, but not only volcanoes, and if you also keep it warm inside the crust, then you are in the good conditions to generate 
continents to form a continental crust. So you need a bit of a mixture between these two processes in order to explain what we see today? Exactly. We, we need a bit of volcanism, and, but we need a lot of uh, intrusion of, of this process where you keep the magma inside the crust. Were you surprised that you needed a mixture between these two processes or was it kind of what you were expecting in the first place? It is exactly what we expected in the first place because on present day Earth there is volcanism and there is intrusion, there is also magma being stored in, in, in the crust itself. So basically what we're saying is that the same conditions might have occurred uh, on the early Earth. In simulating the conditions of the early Earth, you also spotted a behaviour where a large part of the crust, or even the whole crust, can sometimes sink and get swallowed up by the mantle. Is there any evidence that this kind of behaviour actually takes place? So the interesting um, idea of this study can also really apply to other planets. So... I'm thinking in particular about Venus. So Venus is about 470 degrees warmer than the Earth. It's extremely warm. And, and it somehow looks like the early Earth, probably, which was probably about 300 degrees warmer, at least in the mantle. So one interesting observation, you know, when people look at, at the surface of Venus, there is few craters, but not so many. And that means that Quite recently, which means 500 million years ago, the whole surface of Venus actually uh, destabilized and, and sunk in the mantle. Our models actually show similar behaviors. So if we put too much crust in, in the surface, then the, the surface can actually sink suddenly in the mantle. So we believe that it's what happened in Venus, and we see it happening in our simulation for the early Earth. So it seems like Venus and the early Earth had a similar behaviour. That was Antoine Rosel, who's at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Give his study a read at nature.com forward slash nature. Thanks again to everyone who's taken the time to respond to our survey. We're going to leave it up for one more week. The link is on our website as well as Twitter at Nature Podcast. And the survey shouldn't take longer than two minutes. In the news just around the corner, DC reporter Sarah Reardon joins us with stories of sublime strings and how the National Institutes of Health is dividing up its dosh. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Words and pictures printed in ink can fade over time as the chemicals break down. So scientists in Denmark have developed an ink-free printing technique that relies on the shape of the surface to reflect light of different colours. They took a thin film made of tiny discs and used laser beams to bend the discs into different shapes. Spheres, for example, reflected red light. The authors made a pretty convincing, if slightly grainy, picture of Niels Bohr. They suggest using the new material on plastic packaging, posters, even cars, to reduce the need for chemical dyes. Find the paper in Science Advances. Elderly mice given a low dose of marijuana's active ingredient did better on memory tests, but the performance of young mice suffered when they were given the same compound. The brain's endocannabinoid system, which has roles in mood and memory, is less active with age. It also responds to the active compound in cannabis, THC. So scientists put two and two together and tried boosting THC to improve memory. After a month on a low dose, 
Old mice did as well on memory and learning tests as young, untreated mice. Nature Medicine has the full report. Before we move on to the next story, last week we featured three scientists whose fieldwork had put them at risk, and I asked you for any data you'd seen on researchers who'd been injured or even killed during fieldwork. Well, Adrian Jagey, who's an anthropologist at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, sent us a link to a survey of over 200 anthropologists. It's a little dated, it's from the late 80s, but most of the researchers had experienced some form of hazard, albeit mild, like sunburn or insect bites. An unlucky 13 people had been involved in accidents in a vehicle or involving a weapon, and over 20 people had contracted serious diseases like malaria or hepatitis. We also received a link to a list of naturalists who died in the field, thanks to Roel van Klink, who flagged that list for us. We'll put a link to both items on our website. Cancers form when a random mutation causes a random cell to start dividing out of control. A simple genetic mistake. But the outcome can be impressively complicated, as Sharmini Bundell found out. There are two papers out this week looking at how certain lung cancer tumours survive and thrive. One important factor is the internal complexity of the tumours. Different cell types seem to perform different roles and can even help create a microenvironment where specific local conditions help the tumour thrive. Marichelle Uck of Cambridge University has co-authored a News & Views article on both papers and I asked her why a cancer cell's environment is so important. The tumoral cells by themselves, it's not that they can self-sustain themselves. They cannot do that unless there is this microenvironment that nourishes them. And, if, and the interesting thing is that they produce their own microenvironment. The microenvironment has to provide everything the tumour needs. Things like food and oxygen have to be transported from elsewhere. But there are some things a tumour needs, like certain signalling molecules, that it can produce for itself. What they are producing is actually two signalling molecules called wind and notch ligands, which both are very important during development and during growth and repair. And surprisingly, the cancer cells themselves produce their own wind-producing cell and their own notch-producing cell. So, rather than relying on other parts of the body for these signalling molecules, certain cells within the tumour are specialising to be able to provide wind and notch to the rest of the tumour. And what is more interesting is that the cells that do that are derived from the tumour cells themselves. So, you would have a mother tumour cell that produces a daughter tumour cell that is the one that will produce the wind and notch to nourish the mother tumour cell. This is interesting because you might assume that a cancer-causing mutation could only give rise to a tumour made of identical cells, all doing the same thing. But actually, it is starting to be quite well understood that this is not the case, that there is a lot of cellular heterogeneity within a tumour. This cell heterogeneity is sort of like a division of labour, where different cells are performing different jobs within the tumour. For instance, the cell that produces the wind ligand does not produce the wind receptor, but helps the cell that it's next to it to divide. Marichelle Uck there. As she mentioned, one of the papers looked at wind signalling and found some cells producing wind ligands and others receiving them. The author of that paper, Tuomas Tamela, explained what wind ligands do in normal tissue. Wind ligands are secreted proteins that are made by cells and typically provided to a neighbouring cell. And these wind growth factors play a very important role 
in the maintenance of adult stem cells. We all have adult stem cells in our bodies that can divide and give rise to different types of daughter cells. And the fact that Wnt signalling is involved with normal stem cells turned out to be quite important for Thomas's work on Wnt signalling in lung cancer. My experiments showed that Wnt is produced by one cancer cell population to another cancer cell population that receives that Wnt ligand. And these cells that receive the Wnt ligand behave like normal tissue stem cells in, in the sense that they have a lot more capacity to give rise to other cancer cells. And these Wnt-receiving cells even have the capacity to give rise to Wnt-producing cells. This stem cell-like flexibility has big implications for treatment of the cancer. For example, current therapies may focus on killing the Wnt-producing cells. But getting rid of only these cells might not work if the stem cell-like Wnt-receiving cells can then turn back into Wnt-producing cells and thus keep the tumour going. Twomas and his team tested whether disrupting the Wnt pathway could be used to treat tumours. So targeting Wnt made the tumours lose the stem cell activity that we had shown was very important in driving the growth and proliferation in these tumours. And when we took out cancer cells from a tumour that was treated with this Wnt inhibitor, and, and uh, transplanted them into a recipient, they no longer were able to form tumours. This result reveals just how complex the internal workings of tumours are. And, as Marcel Uck explained, these lessons could change the way we treat cancer. It is clear that it's not enough to target the cell that divides, but you also have to target the cell that nourishes the tumour because cells can change fate, they can change the fate of other cells that would not be producing the tumour into tumour-producing cells. I think that's what is remarkable. The tumoral cells really are independent. They don't need the host, in a sense, because they produce their own factors, their own environment, their own nourishment. That was Marichelle Uck of Cambridge University talking to Sharmini Bundell. Before her, you heard from Tuomas Tomella of MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Both papers and the News & Views article are available on nature.com nature for those who want to know more about Wnt and Notch and those clever cancer cells. Time now for our weekly peek into the news section of Nature and Sarah Reardon joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Adam. So first up, the National Institutes of Health is implementing a new approach to grants. Before we get into the impacts of it, what are they actually planning on doing? There's been a problem uh, in recent years, which I'm sure we've talked about many times before on the podcast, where younger researchers have trouble getting their first grants sometimes because there are so many people in the field and the competition is very stiff. And so what the NIH is trying to do is to um, see if there's a way that they can limit the number of grants that any one scientist can have and then make those other ones available to more researchers. So ultimately, more people would have grants rather than having sort of the wealth concentrated in a few labs. And as you can imagine, this is going to be very controversial, for, um, especially getting a lot of outcry from the people who have a lot of grants. And say there's a reason that they have a lot of grants, which is that they're doing the best research. So the NIH is going to have a lot of work to do to figure out a way to implement this fairly. So what is actually the approach that they're implementing? So, so it's actually very difficult to assess how much grant support someone has. Because if you're running a huge clinical trial with 
1,000 people, it's going to be much, much more expensive than if you're trying to run, um, say, an experiment in yeast in your lab. So you can't just say, well, well, everyone should have a maximum amount of money that they're getting because then that's a ridiculous amount of yeast research that can be done <laughs> um, as compared to uh, patient research. And so what um, the NIH has decided to do is implement a point system. Uh, every type of grant is worth a different number of points. An R01 is seven points, and the maximum number that someone can have going forward will be 21 points. So that's the equivalent of three R01s. How well do they expect that this should be able to redistribute the money from these kind of very effectively wealthy researchers to the younger, poorer researchers? So according to the NIH's statistics, they they don't think that that many researchers are actually going to be affected. They say that it's only 6% of investigators, um, but they think that redistributing those will... Uh, free up another 1,600 grants. So that that's a lot of a uh, lot more people who could get one or two grants. Now, I've spoken in the past with younger researchers who've been frustrated at how difficult it is to get grants, and I'm sure some of them are welcoming this. But across the spectrum, what's the reaction been for people who might seek to get grants from the NIH? Um, really mixed reactions, um, both through people I've talked with and on um, social media. This is getting a lot of play on social media. You probably would expect uh, young researchers are thrilled and think that it's time that they get some things that get made a little bit easier for them. Older researchers, some of them are saying that this is redistribution of wealth and that they've earned these grants. The reason that the NIH, though, has decided that this is a good idea is they've done a number of studies um, and other outside researchers have done studies, too, that find that the more money a lab has, the better research, typically. Um, But that only is true to a certain point. Once the lab gets too many grants and is essentially spread too thin, the quality of the research flattens out or even goes down because the scientists no longer have as much time to spend on any given project. And so that that that's their rationale is that even if you're doing really good science, you've only got 24 hours in a day and that maybe someone else would be better able to be more productive with that uh, amount of money. Assuming that they can get everyone on board and this goes ahead, when can we expect this to actually come into play? Um, well, they don't necessarily get, need to get everybody on board. Um, they're going to get feedback, and we'll see what they decide to do. And this is going to be an NIH-wide policy that's just going to be their rules going forward. They said that it could be as soon as this, this fall, but that, as are many other aspects of this policy, are still kind of up in the air. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out and how it ends up shaking up the research world. But in the meantime, there's been a new piece of research which looks like it might shake up the music world. Uh, Yeah, this is uh, kind of a neat study out of the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences Journal this week. Um, It has to do with Stradivarius violins, which are widely considered among violinists to be the best instruments ever. They were created in the 1800s, and no one is quite sure why they sound so good. There have been a lot of studies trying to figure out if there's some sort of special varnish on the wood or a special way that they've been carved. But this study that's out isn't trying to look at that question. What they're trying to look at is, is this sort of legend about them being the best instruments ever really justified? And so what they did was have violinists play Stradivariuses and modern violins in a concert hall for audiences. And as it turned out, the Stradivariuses did not seem to be better, um, rather 
people judged that the modern violins were just as good, if not better themselves. Um, and they weren't able to tell either whether the violinist was playing a Stradivarius or a modern instrument. We've actually got some of the recordings, so here's one of the violins. And here's another. So, for the record, the first one is the Stradivarius. No, I couldn't tell the difference either. But is this the first time this kind of comparison has been made between a Stradivarius and a very good modern violin? No, there have been some uh, sort of blind tests before, um, but those have been done in labs or in studios and the critique, the criticism that musicians have given back to the researchers is that that's not a realistic scenario. The Stradivarius is their whole legend comes from how good they sound in a concert hall. How is this news being received by people in the classical music industry, either people who play or listen to music? Um, well, there, there are some questions about the study that, that are kind of valid. Um, for, first of all, that the person who's actually playing is going to know what kind of instrument they're playing, even if the audience doesn't. Um, and they might be more skilled if they've been playing a Stradivarius their whole life. And so they, they might be playing one a little bit better than the other, or even their own preconceptions of Stradivarius is the best, so it's going to sound the best, and then they play it better. Um, that could be possibly having an influence as well. So I, th- I thought that that was a pretty valid question. As far as musicians go, it might not really matter for the music world. It's sort of the whole impetus for trying to figure out why Stradivariuses have these qualities and whether they really have these qualities is so that you could improve other violins. And if these other violins sound good and Stradivariuses sound good, there's no real reason to say, well, science says we should use this one or science says we should use this other one. So if you have a Stradivarius at home, don't throw it away yet, I suppose. I think that's generally good advice. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. And for more on those news stories and, of course, others, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. A big thank you to the composer of our new music, the uber-talented James Bully. Find him on Twitter at JJBully. That's J-J-B-U-L-L-E-Y. Tune in next week to hear how robots can help humans work together. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.